Hello, I'm here today with Jorge Arango, Information Architect and co-author of the fourth edition of Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. Jorge, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Mary. I'd like to start off by just letting people know that are listening to this um, a little bit more about you and your background and what you're working on these days. Thank you. So um, I'm, like you said, I'm an information architect. I've been practicing in the field that is usually referred to as user experience design for over 20 years now, mainly in Panama, where I'm originally from. And within the last year, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I am now working as a partner in FutureDraft, which is a digital product design consultancy. Mm -hmm. We're based in Oakland and uh, doing a lot of design work for organizations of all sorts. And my background is in architecture. Um, I went to architecture school and... Um, and I tend to see the world, the world through architects' eyes. Okay, great. So, so you mentioned you have a, um, a degree in architecture. How did you find your way to the digital realm? So I've been involved with computers from way before I decided to become an architect. Mm -hmm. um, I was introduced to computers by my grandfather when I was about seven or eight years old. Uh, I was very fortunate to have someone in my family who my grandfather who was very interested in the first wave of personal computers hmm. and he got a uh, a TRS-80 model one <laughs> very early on it must have been in the late 70s early 80s and that's how I got introduced to the digital space but then um, I went on to get a degree in architecture and that was at a time when the the web hadn't yet yet come out. The internet was around, but it wasn't anything mainstream. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember becoming very excited when I first saw the web and uh, and realized the potential it had. And then the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to me like my education in architecture would be very useful when, uh, when doing work in this space. Hmm. Because it, there was this combination between um, engineering and understanding of materials and the physical properties of things that you use to make uh, environments that people can um, can use and, and where they lead their lives hmm. and th this combination of um, engineering and uh, ergonomics or like human factors mm -hmm. and, the, and then arts right so the architecture has this very strong um, this strong footing on um, on on a more artistic side of things mm -hmm. that I think that combination um, basically is perfect for this type of work. Okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about the work you've been doing on the fourth edition. And specifically, you know, you've been, you've been at this, I would say, what, for a year or so? Yep. Um, since we, we talked last year at the IA Summit. What, what, if anything, has become apparent to you as you've been working on the book, on the fourth edition? 
how you know obviously the it's the world has changed quite a bit since the first edition release but now that you're really moving into and what i consider a pretty heavy rework of of the third edition to the fourth what what has become obvious to you or what has surprised you mm-hmm. uh well let, let me start by saying that the polar bear book information architecture for the World Wide web was instrumental in helping my work, my career, kind of get to another level. Mm -hmm. Um, The first edition of that book came out in the late 90s. And at that time, uh, my work, and I think the work of many people who were doing the sort of thing that I was doing, was very focused on trying to to come to grips with what we could and couldn't do with uh, the materials we were working with, which was basically HTML, mm-hmm. but also all this other stuff around it. Um, you know, remember Perl and uh, Flash and uh, <laughs> and all these other, Java at the time. You know all these other things that were coming around to to flesh out our our toolkit. And I think the work at that time was very focused on the surface of things, on what you couldn't do and I remember like trying very hard to make these things that we were making look as much as possible like printed pages and that was the challenge right right and this book came out at a time when um, I think many of us had come to grips with the materials mm-hmm. but we weren't very clear yet on how to use them to make things that were uh, truly usable uh, understandable findable at scale uh, so th- that first edition of the book kind of validated a lot of things for me and also helped give me direction. Mm-hmm. So I have a very special place in my heart for the Polar Bear book, as I'm sure a lot of people do. Um, so that was, like I said, in the na- late 90s. And I don't know if you remember that at the time there was this concept of internet years. Hmm. So we have this colleague that pegs... Uh, one internet year at seven human years, which if you go by that calculation, the first edition of the polar bear book is about 80 human years old now, <laughs> you know, and a lot has changed since then. Uh, but the, the, the main thing that has changed is that the context that that book was written for the, the first edition was a context where the web was new and uh, exciting and people were trying to figure out what to do with it. And in the intervening years, uh, we've seen the web, this activity that people used to do in basically in desktop computers tethered by wire to the internet uh, using a a web browser to, um, to a situation in which we're accessing information in all sorts of different contexts with uh, mobile devices with small touchscreens and uh, you know access to the internet everywhere. You, know, mm-hmm. you, can, you can you can look up something on Wikipedia standing at the supermarket line. Um, in addition to that, we've had the growth of uh, things like social media, uh, for example, Facebook, which has um, made it possible for uh, a lot more people to. To, to publish and have access to information than ever before. Mm-hmm. But it's, 
I think it's not entirely clear today what the the sort of perspective that a very web-centric information architecture brings to the table to help make either of those two things better. So mobile, you know, the, the, the mobile experience uh, via apps or otherwise, and um, things like social media. Mm. And now, of course, we have um, the Internet of Things and uh, you know, smart doorknobs and smart thermostats and self-driving cars and all these things where it's, it's like the network is becoming uh, more pervasive and more uh, varied mm -hmm. in, 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 the, in the instances it, it can take. So uh, the, I think the, the primary challenge in the fourth edition is uh, making it clear that the principles that underlie information architecture mm -hmm. transcend the World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. They are applicable to any situation in which you're trying to make information easier to find and uh, easier to understand once it's been found. Mm -hmm. And that's what information architecture does. And uh, if you go back to even the first edition of the Polar Bear book, the fundamentals are there. To, mm -hmm. to make it possible for designers to create things that are easier to find and understand. Mm -hmm. it, and it's a, it's a, the challenge is one of bringing those fundamentals forward and setting them in, um, in a context that makes it clear to people that, that this, uh, while still applicable for web design, uh, transcends web design. Right, right. Well, I think it's also interesting, you know, at least what I'm seeing is there seems to be a return to or a renewed emphasis on the fundamentals, whether it's information architecture or human-centered design. It seems to me with all of, you know, with even with all this, this change in technology and where we're headed, it actually emphasizes the fact that you actually need to focus on the basics. That's um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, mobile, social, and the Internet of Things. I'm curious, are there, um, are there companies out there that you kind of, uh, I shouldn't say surprised, but maybe surprised, that, uh, th that they're interested in learning more about um, information architecture? I mean, I, I imagine from your viewpoint, everyone should care about it, right? But different people wake up to the value it brings at different times. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can point specifically to companies, but I'm. Um, I guess I'm. I'm surprised by how many people actually know about it. Because I, I think, I mean, frankly, a, a lot of what we do is fairly esoteric. Yeah. And, and I'm not just talking about information architects. I'm talking about. Uh, those of us in you know, technology in, in general and, mm -hmm. and the design professions. But uh, on having moved to California, I, I had this open question in my mind. So how, how, um, how much do people know about this stuff here? Mm -hmm. And uh, is it something that is uh, you know, talked about? And I'm, um, I've been pleasantly surprised by uh, interactions with 
clients and and prospects and and just folks around here uh, you know, th there seems to be a realization in many cases they probably don't know to call it information architecture mm -hmm. per se but there seems to be a, rea a realization that uh, that stuff needs to be easy to find and easy to understand that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah um are there products or people that are that are on your radar that you come across um that are interesting to you um, beyond obviously your own work yeah yeah so it's uh i find that i'm most interested and most surprised and most inspired by mm -hmm. people and things from outside our field hmm. um uh i mean i i obviously pay attention to what's going on uh within the user experience design space mm -hmm. and uh, I guess read the same blogs and subscribe to the same feeds as everyone else. But uh, I'm usually more interested by the ideas that come from outside the field. Sure. So can and, you can, can you give me a few examples of, of what yeah. you mean by that? Yeah. So um, just for people. So I can tell you someone in particular who is very interesting to me is the musician, artist, and record producer, Brian Eno. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, Brian Eno, I, I guess his work is fairly well known. Um, I know that some of his albums are uh, used by a lot of folks to to help them do their work because mm -hmm. they have you know, this ambient music that he made. Mm -hmm. But um, I find that his ideas are uh, almost as interesting as his work. He talks a lot about... Um, having his work be about creating a context hmm. and uh, creating frames around which you see things. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also, uh, it's a work that much of it is driven by, um, by the desire to create a system to produce the work as opposed to uh, produce the work itself. Mm-hmm. So in many cases, the interesting thing about what he does is is the the system that he set up to to create whatever it is you're listening to or or observing. Um, so so he's someone I find very interesting hmm. um, and constantly renewing. And with uh, with regards to products, it's uh, it's very difficult. It's one of these situations where I feel like I have a problem because <laughs> uh, because. <laughs> Like a lot of people uh, in in our field, I tend to be uh, very intrigued and enamored by the latest, uh, you know, shiny gadgets, and uh, <laughs> and end up having a lot of uh, chargers around and things to charge at night, which is annoying. <laughs> but uh, but the things that I find most interesting, and which have some kind of um, that end up having a place in my um, in my uh, I guess arsenal or, or, or tool sets are things that um, that clearly give me superpowers. Hmm. You know? um, I think that there are so many gadgets around and so many things to be paying attention to. And you know, just this past week, uh, you know, the 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 Apple Watch has been in the news, and mm -hmm. there's this whole category of wearable devices that that seems very interesting and very intriguing. Um, but which you know, I, I don't have a clear idea yet on how they give me superpowers. Uh, but I have this one product that um, that is a bit older, but that clearly gives me superpowers. Uh, 
and it's a uh, it's a Windows tablet actually. Hmm. Yeah, it's a um, and I'll tell you what it is specifically. It's the Lenovo ThinkPad Tablet Two, hmm. and it's a uh, it's it runs Windows Eight, and it's got an Atom processor, so it's fairly low end. But the interesting thing about it and the superpower it gives me is that it um, I've always used a sketchbook. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, since even before architecture school, but especially, you know, doing architecture work, I, I like to draw and I think through my hands. I like to, you know, I, I'd like to sketch out what I'm thinking and, and, and work that way. And uh, I've been searching for a long time for a digital equivalent of a paper sketchbook mm-hmm. that allows my ideas to flow as freely as they do with pen and paper. Uh, but that you know has all the advantages of digital, where it can be um, uh, pervasive, where you can back it up. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I've moved to the U.S., I have a um, I have a shelf back in Panama where I have uh, years of sketchbooks kind of sitting on the shelf, which I can't access to because they're physically there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would love to have something where all my work is with me. And uh, this device comes the closest to to anything I've found yet uh, to to achieving that, uh, and it's because it has a digitizer uh, built in. So the experience of writing on the screen with the stylus very close to writing on on paper. Right, makes sense. So, yes. Excellent. Okay. Um, I have one final final question. I think it's my final question anyway. Um, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you think the most important skills are for designers today. And, and you know, we, we hear about design unicorns and full-stack designers, um, you know, all over the web. People write about these things and debate them. But it does seem that there is um, a need for for information architects, for designers to learn a bit more about everything, to have a broader understanding of of their worlds, in, including, you know, business literacy and maybe even programming um, skills. Not to say they need to code, but they need to know wh- who they're working with when it comes to teams. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what your view is on that and what you think are the most important skills. Mm-hmm. For folks learning, you know, they're either in the design field and they find themselves in new situations, or perhaps they're just getting into the field. Um, anyway, I'll let you. Yeah. Tell me what you think. So my, my perspective on this uh, again is very informed by uh, the experience of of having uh, studied architecture, mm-hmm. and and I remember uh, remember when I was uh, in architecture school. We had uh, basically a shop class where we learned to uh, to do things like weld steel using a you know an acetylene torch and uh, mix concrete and uh, make a brick wall hmm. things like that yeah and uh, the the expectations of our teachers uh, in in teaching us these things weren't that we would go out and uh, and become building contractors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the expectation was that we would learn very tangibly to understand the materials that we were working with, 
um, you know, when, when you're making a building, uh, buildings are very complex and they have a lot of materials that, that go into making them. And they all have different characteristics. Some of them are better at uh, tension, some are better at compression, some are more porous than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, some have uh, the, the, the way that they're fabricated or, or the way that they're, they're put together on the site affect what you can and cannot do with them. And uh, I think that it's the same in our field. I, I think that if you're designing, one of the challenges in designing uh, what come down to digital artifacts is that it seems to be a completely open space in which you can do anything. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there, there are constraints and, and, and particular opportunities inherent in the different materials that you're working with, whether it's uh, a particular type of... Uh, of database or you know front-end technologies uh, there's all these uh, javascript uh, libraries now where you can do very interesting things on the client side and understanding what those things can and cannot do is very important mm-hmm. um, so i think that at the very ba- at the most basic level having that understanding of what you can and cannot do with the materials is very important and then at another level and here kind of thinking a little bit more abstractly is uh, I think the most important skill is being able to be good at what you do but being able to jump up and down uh, kind of levels of abstraction hmm. to to think about what you're doing uh, but not think just about the little piece that you're working on but think about the context that it fits into mm-hmm. whether, whether it's the the business context that it's in Hmm. Uh, or, or the role within the organization that you're being asked to play, uh, but also e- the even broader context than that. You know, where where does this fit in um, to the marketplace or or as a whole in in society? And and this being able to zoom up and down levels of abstraction, I think, is very important. And again, it's informed by your understanding of of the not just the materials, but also uh, the the direction that the technologies are taking in general. That is great. Um, that is great advice. I hadn't thought about it quite that way before. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much, Jorge, for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thank you.